Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a middle grade novel due out on May 11th. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider how do you take an enormous subject like precision engineering or the oceans, or in this case, land ownership, and shape it into one book? Simon Winchester is the acclaimed author of many books, including The Professor and the Madman, The Map That Changed the World, and Krakatoa, all of which were New York Times bestsellers and appeared on numerous best and notable lists. Simon has also written biographies of two oceans, Atlantic and Pacific. This year, he came out with Land, How the Hunger for Ownership Shaped the Modern World. In 2006, Simon was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire by Her Majesty the Queen. I can't believe we didn't ask him about being made an officer of the Order of the British Empire. I've never met anyone who's an officer of the Order of the British Empire. Me neither. But thank goodness we asked him what we did. I know. We typically begin our interviews with a softball question, something to put our guests at ease, you know, and get the conversation rolling. Most of the time we end up editing out those questions and the answers, but not today. Mm -mm. No. We noticed in Simon's bio on his website that back in 1965, when he was studying geology at Oxford, he was part of a six-man sledding expedition onto an uncharted section of the East Greenland ice cap. And we started the interview by asking him to tell us about it. The story he relayed was astonishing. Enjoy. It was called the Oxford University East Greenland Expedition. It was led by a a man called John Rutledge, who was a PhD student. And um, there were five others of us, Kent Brooks, David Rex, Richard Norris, me and one other fellow whose name I can't remember. So we all got on an icebreaker in Copenhagen and went off to a little town called Scoresby Sund in East Greenland with a huge amount of supplies. Scoresby Sund is on the northern side of an enormous field, biggest field in the world, 30 miles across. So we took a little boat run by Inuit people, fishermen, over to the south side, which was essentially uninhabited and full of glaciers and spectacular mountains. And then we unpacked our sleds. We had two sleds and skis. The skis were enormous. I mean, they were much taller than I am, so must have been nine feet long. You had seal skins on the bottom of them so that you didn't go backwards if you're going down, going up a slope. You can continue going up. Anyway, so we got to the foot of a glacier, roped ourselves up, pushed our way off and climbed up the glacier. And it took about a week and then got out onto the Greenland ice cap where there were these huge mountains called Nunataks. And then you're going to regret asking me this question, but I will. (laughs) I'm I'm fascinated. Keep going. So we had special drills And the idea was 
that we were going to drill samples of the basalt of which these nunataks were made to find out a crucial question about whether or not Greenland had moved since the basalt, which is a volcanic rock, was laid down about 30 million years before. So we drilled these samples out, armed with all of these samples after about two months up on the ice cap. So we've eaten all our food, we've replaced the food with the rock samples, we slid down, and I was the radio operator because I knew Morse code. So um, we looked with horror at the fjord, the 30-mile-wide fjord, but it was covered with ice, which had blown in from the ocean during the summer. And it made it impossible for the Inuits to come and pick us up. So we were stranded there. And we had no food or very little food. We had Weetabix and margarine, and that was it. And so I had to shoot, and this is a, an admission, but I'm happy to confess, because I was a fairly good shot, a polar bear <gasps> to eat. I know, I hear your gasps of incredulity. So I shot the polar bear. We ate it. It was a very old bear. And um, one of the disagreeable things about it was, and you mustn't if you're ever in a similar position, ever eat a polar bear's um, liver because it is so filled with vitamin A that you will die. But we knew that and we didn't. And so I dissected the polar bear. And the disagreeable thing was that the, the muscles of its legs, which we were going to uh, stew, were full of these flatworms called planaria, which were about two inches long. So you had to prize these worms out of the muscle. And we used to have races with them along the ice. Anyway, <laughs> so much time to kill. <laughs> all, all time. Then eventually the Inuit boat said, look, we can get to within about five miles of you, but basically we can't get any further. If you're going to come and have a chance of catching the icebreaker to go back to Copenhagen and go back to Oxford, then um, you'll have to come out and walk across the ice now. So we loaded up these samples of boxes of rocks and walked over these incredibly dangerous, unstable ice flows, knowing that the water was about a mile deep and also bitterly cold. I mean, you would survive about 50 seconds of exposure to it. So we got, there was the boat, and um, we would run across these ice flows and leap. The boat was about six feet away from the nearest ice flow. And all of us got through. We were roped together, except John, the leader, John Rutledge, who went on to be a professor of geology at the University of Toronto. He went through the edge of the ice and plummeted downwards. We hauled <gasps> him back up. And as he broke the surface, his beard just froze instantly. He was bitterly cold. And the Inuit said, do not give him alcohol, do not give him brandy or whiskey, which we had, just hold him. And so we all cuddled around him and gradually his blue turned to pink and he survived. And we got back to Scoresby Sun to find the icebreaker had already left. So how to get back? Well, there's only one possible way, and that was to whistle up an aeroplane from Iceland. There was no runway, so we built a runway and cleared all the rocks off a particularly flat terrace and um, put oil drums with kerosene-soaked rags so that we could illuminate it at night and telegraphed this man. He was called Bjorn Palsen, and he agreed to come and rescue us. 
And so he could only take, he was a Cessna 172, and we could only take three passengers at a time with the rocks. So mm-hmm. we do straws, and the first three successfully, he landed, picked them up off to Iceland. And I promise you the story is coming to an end very quickly. <laughs> then it was getting dark, a blizzard blew up, and we lit all the kerosene rags. And so they were, if you can imagine, flickering in the wind. Is this plane going to come? Is it going to come? Is it going to come? Finally, we heard the distant sound of a propeller aeroplane. And he did his circle around the landing strip, bounced down, quick, quick, come on. We ran to him, piled in our rocks, jumped in. An hour and a half later, we were in the safety of Reykjavik Airport. And the following day, caught British Airways to Aberdeen and down to London, talked to the geology department at Oxford to say we were back safe. We're at the Savoy Hotel, having tea, celebrating our return. We got a telephone call to say that Bjorn Palsen, the man who had rescued us and charged no money for doing so, had been that afternoon killed in a plane crash, rescuing someone else in Iceland. So the story has a terrible poignancy to it. But it was a great success in terms of science, because when they looked at the rock samples we brought back, they found that Greenland, and this was 1965, Greenland had shifted 15 degrees to the west in the 30 million years since those rocks were laid down, proving what was now incontrovertible, that continental drift had occurred. And the theory of plate tectonics, which had just been adduced in July of that same year, was undeniably true. Unbelievable. <laughs> I am so glad we asked you this question. I feel like the next question should just be, and what's another favorite story right, from exactly. that? Could, I haven't told could. that story for 10 years, but it is, you can tell, it's engraved on my heart. You never know where a question is going to take you, right? Wasn't that unbelievable? Yes, I was just jaw dropped the entire time. I know. Sometimes we have questions that we think will elicit fascinating answers and they don't. And sometimes we have questions that we assume are just throwaways and we get something so riveting that we're just praying that nothing is messing up the recording. I kept checking to make sure it was record, record, record. It was so good. (laughs) Every interview is unpredictable. It's one of my favorite parts about doing book dreams. And now we know where Philip Pullman got the name for his character, Lee Scoresby in The Golden Compass. Bonus! Yay! (laughs) Scoresby soon is the little town in East Greenland that Simon mentioned. It was named after a man called Scoresby, who was a famous whaling captain. Anyway, After this incredible story, we turned at last to the subject of the interview, which is Simon's new book, Land. Simon opens the book with a lengthy description of 123 acres of land that he bought in Dutchess County, New York, about 20 years ago. We asked him how his thoughts and feelings about land ownership changed as a result of writing this book. And here's what he said. They changed really not so much with the writing of the book, but with becoming an American citizen. I bought this land in 1999, and I was then still a foreigner, an immigrant. And yes, I liked the idea of owning land. I had never done so before. My parents, all they ever owned in their lives was about a quarter of an acre, a garden in the middle of England. And the thought of owning acreage, it didn't mean a great deal to me until the moment I became a citizen. And that was in 2011. And then all of a sudden, 
it seemed that I was quite literally invested in the country of which I had become a citizen. And so I would go down to the land saying to myself, this is bizarre. I own this. I don't want to be ultra dramatic about it, but I would could fall to my knees and sift the soil and the hummus and the uh, the leaves and twigs and say, I own that and that tree and that brook, all of it I own. But what does that actually mean? And so I started looking into its history and I could find all the documents, all the title deeds. Slowly the deeds ceased to be typewritten. They started to become handwritten. And then they became, as you progressed further back, in bad condition, difficult to read, and then slowly, no longer English, but Dutch. And then the people involved in the transaction didn't sign their names, as I had, whoever it was, had carved an X or drawn a small picture of a deer or the horns of a ram or something. And I realized that these were, of course, the Mohican Indians, the people that had first occupied these acres. But crucially, they had never owned the land. They were simply saying to the Dutch who wanted to own it, well, of course, you can use it, you can hunt on it, you can do with it, with our permission and our blessing, what you will. But the idea of ownership, I mean, you can no more own this land than you can own the sky or the breeze or the ocean. And so that's effectively how this idea, the difference between me knowing that I owned it in the same way that I might own a refrigerator or a car or a horse, but that people previous to me had thought this was a ludicrous notion, seemed to be worthy of a book. So can you talk about how that changed and the impact of that change? Yes, it began in a variety of places, but I essentially, because I'm English, choose to begin it in England sometime in the 15th century. If you can imagine a village in central England, 20 houses or so, surrounded by open fields, in those fields, the local the villagers would perform all their agricultural functions. They would graze their cattle, or they would grow turnips or cabbages, or they would raise pigs, everything to produce food for their various households. And that was sort of fine and dandy until the population of the village began to expand. And it suddenly became apparent that they couldn't produce in this fashion quite as much food as they wanted, because the cattle would trample across the cabbages and the pigs would eat the turnips, and it was inefficient. And so some unknown person came up with the idea of apportioning the land to individual people to perform specific bits of agriculture on land that was then to be enclosed by hedges or fences or ditches or lines of stones. And this notion of enclosure spread informally at first until, crucially, the year 1604, when a village 
The little town of Radipole was the first to be officially enclosed with sort of parliamentary sanction. They said, okay, in 30 days, we're going to enclose it to make the agriculture more efficient. Here's a map. Field A will belong to Mr. Such and Such, and Field B to Mr. Such and Such, and so on. Overnight, it transformed the agriculture of that village, but it had an important social impact in that an awful lot of people were suddenly dispossessed. Previously, they had been part of owning common land. Now they had no land at all. So they felt disgruntled, and um, a very large number of them said, well, there's no future for us here in the countryside because the big landowners have taken it over. We'll go and try our luck in the cities that were growing, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, London, of course. And then increasingly, as the years wore on into the 17th century and the 18th century, you had hundreds of thousands of people that were dispossessed. And they started looking hungrily at these new possessions which had been discovered across the Atlantic or through the South Seas in Australia and New Zealand. And they went there, and this is the irony of the situation, they travelled, let us say, across from Liverpool to Boston to settle this new land. And they had this idea of ownership and dispossession firmly wired into their heads now because it had happened to them. They knew all about it. And what did they do? They set about dispossessing the people who already lived here. And so the settler colonists that they were, the first act that they undertook effectively was an act of dispossession just as had been meted out to them. I also wanted to ask about the Netherlands. This is obviously a book about land and you've written about oceans. And if there's one nation in particular that has a fascinating story that involves the connection between the two, it would be the Netherlands. Can you talk a little bit about the interplay of water and land there? The Netherlands was a place in northwestern Europe which was flooded on regular and devastating occasions by the waters from the North Sea, one of the most dangerous stretches of water on the planet. Well, an incredibly ingenious Dutch engineer called Cornelis Lely decided that the future of the country depended on it being essentially dried out and protected from flooding. In the middle of the Netherlands, there's a huge body of water, which used to be seawater, the Zuiderzee, the Southern Sea, it was called. And he decided in the 1920s and 30s that he would build a dam protecting the Zuiderzee from the North Sea, separating it. And this was a massive engineering project. It took many, many years. But finally, there was now a wall of stone and concrete and mud protecting the Zuiderzee, walling it off, off from the ocean. And gradually, because the dam held, the water, which was fed by rivers, changed from being salt water to fresh water. And it changed its name. It's now called the Iselmere. So after about 20 or 30 years, the Dutch decided in the southern part of the Iselmere, nearly a million acres, they would create land, land which therefore had never belonged to anybody. So they built a series of dams in the sea and put six 
enormous pumps to pump out the water from inside the dams. And the pumps worked night and day for something like 10 years. And gradually the water level fell and fell and fell until you could see mud, seabed, lake bed. It was impossible to walk on because it was just would swallow you up. But the way to make it dry land and to keep on pumping, of course, was first of all to fly over it with low-flying aircraft full of the seeds of reed plants. And then once the reeds established themselves, set fire to them so that they formed a layer of ash, then lay more reeds, burn more ash, till there's about six inches of ash. This process took five or six more years. Mm -hmm. Gradually, soil was formed, soil that became eventually firm enough for people to walk on, create paths on, create roads on, bring in bulldozers and excavators, and then you could plan farms and you could plan cities, which they then did. They called this new land Flavoland and decided now it was ripe to be populated. So they divided it up, when I say they, I mean the government of the Netherlands, into 60-acre parcels of land and put advertisements in the newspapers in Amsterdam and Rotterdam and The Hague and the other big cities saying, right, we've created the better part of a million acres of land and you can have it if you can improve it. Then it's yours. I mean, you'll pay a peppercorn rent, but a small rent, but you can have it just apply. But one thing is crucial. We're going to keep the demographic nature of this new province of the Netherlands exactly the same as the demography of the country as a whole. So of those people that apply, 30% can be Protestant, 30% can be Roman Catholic, 30% members of the Dutch Reformed Church, 10% other. It may be one of the most boring places on the planet, flat as a billiard table, with hardworking people who after 10 years of showing they improve their land were then given the opportunity to own it. So um, that's the story of land which to acquire it, not a drop of blood had to be spilled. And I think that's marvellous because so much else in the story of the acquisition of land involves either thievery or battling and the loss of life, whereas for Flavoland, none at all. I'm so glad that I got to ask Simon about the Netherlands. I have been fascinated by the interplay of water and land in the Netherlands ever since this beautiful article in the New York Times in 2017 about the Netherlands and climate change. I don't know if you remember it. I don't. It talked about how the interplay of the ocean and land in the Netherlands has been really a matter of survival and they are very much at risk now, of course, because of climate change. And they have really been incredibly innovative in their approach to this problem. So they have lakes and garages and parks and plazas that are designed 
to be part of daily life when water isn't a problem. But also they these places double as these enormous reservoirs for when the seas and the rivers spill over. Oh my God. So yes. one day it's a garage and the next yes. day it's a reservoir and somehow that works. Yes. They... <laughs> And they get people to remove concrete from their gardens so that soil absorbs rainwater to alleviate problems with flooding. And it stands in such stark contrast to places all over the United States that we've been reading about, like Houston, for example, where there's so much concrete now and so little soil that water just has become an increasing problem. There's just increasing flooding. There's nowhere for it to go. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The flexibility of the Dutch is so instructive. I really hope we can learn to be more like them as we address climate change. Yeah. Well, and while we're being depressing, <laughs> next, next we asked Simon to tell us about a much less positive example of land acquisition, which was how the British brutally and callously partitioned India after its independence in 1947. So 1947, the British government, after years of dithering, decides that India must be given its independence and sends Lord Mountbatten to be the last viceroy. Mountbatten is charged with bringing independence to this country, India. And he and the Mahatma, Mohandas Gandhi, wanted the country to be united, one country. but. Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the Muslim League, said, no, there must be a separate homeland for India's Muslims. And we're going to call it an acronym after Punjab, Afghanistan, Kashmir, Pakistan. And there will be two Pakistans, one on the west of India, one on the east of India. Partitioning Punjab on the west, Bengal in the east. So that was the decision. But how to create a border between these two new entities, and to do so very quickly. Mm -hmm. So he knew of the existence back in London of a man called Sir Cyril Radcliffe, who was a lawyer of great distinction and rectitude, who had never been to India. In fact, he'd never been east of Paris. But Mountbatten rang him up and said, would you come over here and draw a border between Western India and West Pakistan and Eastern India and East Pakistan. I'll pay you a certain fee. And so a bewildered Cyril Radcliffe arrived and was taken up immediately into the foothills of the Himalayas to a large and relatively cool house, introduced to a staff of six people who all hated one another. And he, Radcliffe himself, got frightfully ill and stomach issues almost immediately. But he was given a bunch of maps and some out-of-date demographic information about the makeup of various villages in the Punjab, and with his fountain pen, drew a line between them, 1,700 miles long. And that was to be the border. Batten said, OK, but that'll be the announcement. Let's declare independence. And so it was, 15th of August, 1947. While the world sleeps, India meets her tryst with destiny, as Nehru, the first prime minister, said. And all of a sudden, utter mayhem broke out because all the Muslims who lived in India wanted frantically to get into this new enclave of Pakistan. And all the Hindus who were in this enclave wanted to get out of Dodge and come to 
the comparative safety, as they saw it, of India. And caught in the middle were half a million Sikhs who were neither one thing nor t'other. And they all, as they crossed this line, bent on killing one another. And they say that nearly two million people were killed in going back and forth across what Cyril Radcliffe called this bloody line. And he was utterly a broken man. He returned to London. He burned all his notes. He refused to accept his fee. And he was haunted by it for the rest of his days. Two million dead because of that line drawn with a fountain pen. And that's before all of the wars since. Just this ongoing strife. It's such a stark example of the devastation that can be wrought by imperialist takeover of land. And it's not like the British didn't know better. I mean, they were just as irresponsible when they divvied up the Middle East after World War I. And look at the Middle East today. It's still in conflict because of that. Yeah. It's really fascinating to me how land ownership can reveal so much about national character. And it reminds me of another really interesting part of Simon's book, where he talks about the notion of trespassing in Scotland. Do you remember that part? Oh, so interesting. Yeah, yeah. So let me read a snippet for everybody who's listening. In Scotland, there is today essentially no such thing as trespass. One now has an absolute statutory right to wander anywhere in the country at any time of night or day, no matter who the land belongs to, and no matter if the landowner objects to your presence on his acres. Your right of access generally traipses right to privacy. The right to roam harmlessly across the landscape, to take exercise, or to simply recreate the soul was for centuries an inalienable part of human existence. Mm. I can't help but compare <laughs> Scotland's attitude to ours in the United States, where you can shoot someone dead if they step onto your property without permission. I know. It's so deeply ingrained. It's scary. But I wonder, given that the right to roam harmlessly across the landscape, which is such a great phrase of Simon's, given that that right was until relatively recently in human history, a universal right, does that mean that the idea of trespassing is actually counter to human nature? I mean, I do think there's something in human nature that says once once something is mine, once we define it as mine, we're going to fight over it if someone tries to take it. So the question then becomes whether we should prevent ourselves from calling land mine. Yeah. It's such an interesting topic. I always think about great apes when I try to figure out what is actually human nature and what is just learned behavior. And apes have territories and chimpanzees. If you're a chimpanzee from a different troop and you come into another troop's territory, you will be killed. So oh, there you go. There is that part right, of us too. Well, on that charming note, I think that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Simon at simonwinchester.com and on Twitter at simonwriter. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and